I'm not sure if you ladies all know this, but there was a big election recently. An election that has divided many people, caused friends and family members to fight, or worse, to stop talking to each other. Both leading up to the election and now still after the election, people are just totally divided. I've personally always been into politics. As a high school student in government and civics class, I was always the one volunteering for the debates. I would even debate the teacher and many times be the only student on one side of an issue debating the entire class, for example, on abortion being pro-life. Um, the last couple election seasons have made me feel like I was back in that classroom. Everywhere, on social media, family get-togethers, restaurants, social gatherings, it seemed to turn into a debate where you had to be on one side or the other. You were either considered right or wrong. The gap between Republican and Democrat, conservative and liberal, grows wider and wider as each party seems to get more extreme in their beliefs or their side and be more outspoken about it. Many Americans find their identity in which party they align themselves with. I started thinking about this as we were studying the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles. There may not be a physical wall around one political party keeping the other out, but many are building these walls themselves by ostracizing others. It's like the way the Jews viewed themselves above the Gentiles. Instead of loving one another, people are answering with anger, hate, protests, riots, and violence. Most important to note here, though, finding your identity in a political party brings you no hope. Just like the Jews and Gentiles needed to learn from Paul's preaching, our only hope and identity is in Jesus Christ. And once we believe and embrace the gospel, we are one corporate body, the body of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or Gentile, man or woman, Republican or Democrat, we are all fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we are, are all one equal nation. This complete equality changes the way believers are supposed to relate to one another. We need to remember this and love one another. We are a part of God's plan, centered in Christ, that brings us to deliverance, but not without suffering. The way we react to that suffering, though, and to each other, is for God's glory. As Paul is teaching here, we need to live out our faith in a way that points to the contrast with the world, including in reflecting this reconciliation with each other across nations, ethnicities, and party lines. In Ephesians 2, Paul established the theme of God's amazing grace, which brings to life those who were dead in sins and reconciled believing Gentiles and Jews both to God and to each other creating in the process a new entity, the church, superseding Israel as the people of God. These topics trigger Paul to pray again as chapter 3 begins. However, it seems his reference to his current situation in prison changes his focus to a discussion of his own personal calling as God's appointed spokesman of this message of salvation and reconciliation. Most of this section is actually one long parenthesis from verse 2 to 13, but it is full of rich content on God's plan, and what lies within that plan is a mystery now revealed. He finishes his prayer in the next section, starting in verse 14, but for now he is going to focus on this revelation he receives of the mystery and his commissioned ministry that is entrusted to him. Paul came to know something, and now he has a responsibility to make that something known to others. 
This section in chapter 3, verse 1 through 13 is in many ways parallel to chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. The words grace, revelation or revealed, made known, preach, make plain, and mystery are used many times in both sections, as well as the structure is very similar. The section is split into three main parts, as you can see by the outlines on your tables. <clears throat> the first is from verse 1 through 5 and includes God revealing the mystery to Paul and Paul's stewardship. The second is an explanation of the mystery of the gospel in verse 6. And the third is in verses 7 through 13 and includes Paul revealing the mystery as a minister empowered by God and the purpose and significance of the gospel. The theme is God's plan of reconciling his people as a complete union with each other and with Christ brings us to deliverance, but not without suffering. It also brings us blessings, including confident, bold access to God. As we start, all that Paul has described previous to this section leads him into what he will say next. So he states, for this reason. This points back to at least chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, if not the whole of chapter 2. The gospel that gives life and includes the Gentiles is the guiding purpose in all that Paul does. He was led into prayer by discussing this. However, he gets distracted, kind of like Sherry said she did. <laughs> we see for this reason repeated again in verse 14 when he refocuses and begins his prayer. I, Paul, is used in several of his letters to place an emphasis as it is here. What distracts Paul is what he mentions next, himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul finds himself as a prisoner because he preached salvation to the Gentiles. However, he doesn't, blame, he doesn't blame the Romans or even the Jews for his imprisonment. To him, their participation is minor. Christ appointed him as apostle to the Gentiles. Whatever happens to him is just part of the job. Or to put it another way, he views his imprisonment for the sake of or for the benefit of you Gentiles. Christ is the one who has laid hold of Paul, and he suffers for the cause as Christ's representative. Jesus is the Lord of Paul's life, not the soldiers imprisoning him. At this point, the thought and the grammar break off, and verse 2 begins a new sentence and a new thought, whereas the previous is an incomplete sentence and will be picked back up in the next section. And here, two main ideas dominate the verse. The idea of the stewardship that Paul has and the fact that God gave it to him. In the beginning of the verse, the grammar used here, assuming that you have heard in the ESV, or if indeed you have heard in the New American Standard Bible, point to the fact that what follows is assumed to be true. Of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Paul assumes the readers recognize that Paul has a stewardship or an administration of the grace of God for them. We should note here that perhaps some of the readers did not know Paul's calling, as this was a circular, circular letter to the churches in Asia, which may be why Paul addresses this in an indirect manner. But also, it had been years since Paul had been with the Ephesians, so it may be more of a reminder to them. The Greek term, here, the Greek term used here speaks of either a plan or of the implementation of a stewardship role of administration in the execution of a plan. Some commentators argue that Paul was referring to his own administration of his mystery. However, the wording here enforces that we should take God as the subject. God manages his plan. He is the administrator. Therefore, the plan Paul has is one that God gave him to carry out, which in verse 9, the term clearly refers to God's plan which was also mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10. 
Paul is stating that his preaching of the gospel to the Gentile community is a stewardship he is obligated to fulfill as a part of God's plan. Additionally, Paul leaves his readers in no doubt about the point of the stewardship. It is for you. The mention of grace here is the enablement God has given him to minister to the Gentiles. God's grace has been featured many times in this letter. We saw it in chapter 1, verses 2 and 6 and 7, and chapter 2, verse 5 and 7 through 8, which predominantly presented grace as God's gift of salvation. But Paul uses grace here to speak of God's specific spiritual gifts. And Paul seems to be referring here to those gifts God gave him to empower his apostolic ministry of preaching salvation in Christ. Paul also distributes the gracious gift of salvation proclaimed through the gospel, since it was given to him from God for you. Next, we see how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. This stewardship that God called Paul to involved unpacking a mystery. The word mystery appears in verse 1 through 6 three times. Here the mystery was made known according to revelation. This is not a teaching Paul or other Christians devised. It was revealed to him by God. He makes this point plain in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through 12, which states, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This knowledge, then, is not only given for Paul to teach others, but came from God directly. His insight here serves the church because God called him to reveal it. Mystery is a common theme in Paul's writing. The term appears 21 times in Paul's letters. Six of those are in Ephesians. The mystery Paul will later describe is a mystery, yet it is known. However, it would never be known if God did not make it known. God chose to reveal himself and his plan to his people. As commentator Bach states, the term mystery is tied to the Old Testament term raz. It refers to something not previously disclosed, but now revealed. In other terms, revealing what is hidden in Christ. That mystery can attach to something that has already been revealed and can fill it out. That is the case here. As early as Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, with the Abrahamic covenant, there was the idea that the plan of God would bless the world. As in choosing to form Israel, God was also choosing to bless the world. The mystery that Paul was preaching about how Christ had brought Gentiles into blessing filled out that initial promise. I think we should also pause here and reflect on how amazing it is that God would take a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church to be the main minister of the mystery. The mystery of the work of the gospel in bringing Jew and Gentile together into one new body. In verse 3, there is some uncertainty and debate in regard to the part that states, as I've written briefly in the commentaries. It is vague on whether he is referencing something written earlier in the same document or to an earlier document. But most likely it's referring to his mention of Christ, summing up all things in him in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. And we can be pretty certain he is referring to what he had just written and explained in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. When Paul later explains the content of the mystery in verse 6, 
as reflecting the fact that Gentiles are full beneficiaries of the promise of God, he summarizes and repeats what he already stated in that section. As we finish out point one on our outlines in verses four and five, Paul invites the Ephesians to reflect on what he had just called them to remember in chapter two. His reference here to my insight does not mean Paul has come to these conclusions on his own, but the context clearly points again to God's revelation to him. Paul's hope is that his readers will see that what he has told them has a mark of God speaking through a witness who knows what the call of God is. The Ephesians should be able to perceive his insight into the mystery of Christ. A move to unify Jew and Gentile was socially revolutionary in this time. Paul's emphasis is that this is not his idea, but one from God. Paul doesn't say this to boast or to make much of himself. He is explaining his role as God assigned it to him. He is a mediator of spiritual insight, and his insight contains the mystery of Christ. Paul is speaking particularly about the influence of Christ's work, as the next few verses make clear. This also looks back to the understanding called for in the prayer in chapter 1, found in verses 17 through 19. Part of the knowing God and the riches of God has provided in Christ is reconciliation among relationships. Paul then elaborates on how the revelation of the mystery has worked and again defines mystery though we must await verse 6 to discover its content. He defines it in both negative and positive connotations by stating it was something that was not made known, but now is being revealed. So a mystery pertains to something that was formerly hidden, but is now revealed by God. We need to fully understand that the English and Greek words mystery do not mean the same thing. As one commentator, Stott, explains it in English, a mystery is something dark, obscure, secret, puzzling. What is mysterious is inexplicable, even incomprehensible. The Greek word mysterion is different, though. Although still a secret, it is no longer closely guarded, but open. Originally, the Greek word referred to a truth into which someone had been initiated. Indeed, it came to be used of the secret teachings of the heathen mystery religions, teachings which were restricted to initiates. But in Christianity, there are no esoteric mysteries reserved for a spiritual elite. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, the Christian mysteries are truths, which, although beyond human discovery, have been revealed by God, and so now belong openly to the whole church. More simply, mysterion is a truth hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. No one can come to understand God or can come to faith but by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Evidently, former generations of men, even the most learned and wise, could not understand what God is now revealing to and through his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit. Prophets here are not the Old Testament variety, but the Christian ones, those who had received revelation that helped frame how the gospel was to be understood and lived as commentator Snodgrass explains it. Now clarity, now clarity has come, for God has disclosed the mystery through these select spokespersons who operate with the presence of the Spirit of God. It is for all who receive it, but the revelation came through those who were called to receive it. 
Even today this is so, as our understanding of the faith and the gospel is mediated through the scriptural record of what the apostles and prophets of old received. Of course, the Old Testament taught pieces concerning God's aim to include the Gentiles within his plan. Theodoret says they did not see the whole picture, but wrote down words about aspects of it. It is important to be clear about what was hidden and what was not. The Old Testament always had the blessing of the world in mind, as we mentioned before in Genesis 12, verse 3, for one example, and pointed to a comprehensive deliverance one day, such as in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Jesus also spoke on this idea of the inclusion of Gentiles, such as recorded in John chapter 10, which I had the pleasure of listening to Millie's Sunday school class yesterday. And he also commissioned his followers to go and make them disciples. But what neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan. An implication of all of this is how the role of the law was completely changed as a result such as told about in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 6. This would be replaced by a new international community, the church, and this would be the body of Christ. And Jews and Gentiles would be united to Christ on equal terms. God has progressively revealed himself to his people through dreams, visions, prophets, apostles, writings, the scriptures, and finally, a cumulative reveal in Jesus, a redemptive special revelation. As Hebrew 1 states, long ago at many times, verses 1 through 2, sorry, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom, we appointed, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. One final point on this section is that Paul is not saying he alone is the source of this message and insight. It is shared with other apostles and prophets. All of this shows that the era of the new covenant did bring new structures in the administration of God's plan, opening up a new age. In verse 6, Paul describes the content of the mystery clearly. As earlier in chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, and 21 to 22, the sin prefixes reappear indicating the equal status Gentile believers possess and that this complete equality changes the way believers are to relate to each other, which is a significant part of the gospel message. In Christ, God has brought people together. Paul emphasizes this point in a layering effect, including three different ways they are equal using three Greek adjectives, all starting with sin, which means with or together. These include that the Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews of the inheritance, which was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11 and 14, co-members in the body or the church, which was a blessing state in chapter 2, verse 16, and co-partakers to the promise. This promise, Paul states in other books as well, and includes receiving the Spirit of God, which we saw in chapter 1, verse 13, and a new covenant blessing. However, when he speaks of being co-heirs, it does suggest that there is more to the promise than what has been initiated. To these three terms, Paul attaches two prepositional phrases that modify all three and make clear that these benefits belong to those in Christ Jesus and are obtained through the gospel. In Christ again points to incorporation into Christ. This is the sphere in which these realities apply. The gospel, we remember, embraces God's word of truth that is proclaimed, and that when believed, 
results in a person's salvation and inclusion in Christ. Paul is not saying that Christians are now solely on equal level with all Jews, whether or not Jews believe in Jesus. This comes only from being in Christ. All will share in what is to come. All these benefits come in Christ Jesus through the gospel, the good news. Paul notes Jesus's work in chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. And since the Ephesians responded to preaching with faith, they participate in this grace. All believers in Christ, whether Gentile or Jew, share equal status and equal benefits as members of the new body. That transcends former privileges, divisions, and boundaries. All who are his will share in the peace of Christ. That is part of the summing up in Christ that was mentioned in chapter 1, verse 10. To put it simply, we may say that the mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. It is the double union with Christ and with each other, which was the substance of the mystery. In our final section, Paul reveals this mystery as a minister empowered by God. We see in verse 7 through 8, Paul states, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The thought here closely resembles verse 2 and brings us full circle. Speaking about the mystery, the gospel, Paul notes himself as a servant or a minister. Paul viewed his responsibility as God's gracious gift to him and understood this role to be a great privilege. What better position to be in than to serve the risen Lord? We need to discuss the prepositional phrase here, by the working of his power. If you recall the use of the power terms in chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, the same Greek word for power was used then. And it is attached here to the verb given. This implies God is the agent of that power. God gave Paul the gift of being his servant. God's appointment of Paul to his role was accomplished by God's powerful working in his life. Furthermore, God provided the power to enable Paul to fulfill his role of proclaiming the gospel and making known the mystery. Any spiritual success that may occur because of Paul's efforts are solely due to God's power, not Paul's talent, abilities, or zeal. Paul even notes that this was a ministry of which he was not worthy, being the least of all the saints. Yet God gave him this grace. Paul calls this steward role or job servant here, but this servant has been given grace, a gift that equips him for this role, and which is called grace because it is undeserved. Paul is describing a calling here. This is another dimension of both God's grace and power that Paul wants the Ephesians to appreciate. We usually limit grace to God's gift of salvation, but grace is also the gift of ministry. This gift comes as a task. Grace always brings responsibility. It is never merely a privilege. All who have received grace should extend it to others. Grace connects, enlists, and empowers. It will never allow us to be passive, for it is God's power at work in us. Christian sisters, do you understand the gospel as a gospel of action? The gift cannot be separated from the giver, and the giver is a worker. We must choose to act. We become stewards of grace, responsible for showing others how it works. Ministry is the gift of God's power at work in us for managing grace. 
Grace calls all of us in unique and different ways, but it is not just the responsibility of a few. We tend to think of ministry as our gift to God, but Paul plainly tells us here it is God's gift to us. Perhaps when we think of it in that way, we will stop thinking of it as a chore to be tolerated, but as an expression of God's grace. Ministry is the free flow of God's grace from God through us to other people. Paul specifies his calling here. Preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or in the New American Standard Bible, it is the unfathomable riches of Christ, which I like better. This is but one part of Paul's ministry. He is highlighting, one part of Paul's ministry he is highlighting, as another is mentioned later in verse 9. This theme of the riches that come from Christ is another repeated idea. We saw this before in chapter 1, verse 7 and 18, and also chapter 2, verse 7. I liked how one commentator box states it. Paul is saying to his audience, Look at all you came into when you came to Christ and believed. To make that clear to Gentiles is what God has called me to do. Christ's unfathomable or unsearchable riches are without limits. Everywhere you turn, the wealth of Jesus is apparent, and what he has done is there to be noted. For Paul, it is a joy to preach the wonder of God, a deep reservoir of blessing. Here we should discuss that the revelation that comes in the gospel is not only so that people will understand, but that they may be enlisted in the service of the revealer. The grace that we just talked about was not in relation to Paul's salvation, but to his ministry. Through grace, he became a servant of the gospel. Grace not only connects us to God and Christ and to each other, but it also joins us to the mission and empowers us for that task. Pastor Jeff challenged us yesterday to tell at least two people this week the good news. This should be our mindset all the time. We should all feel a joy to share the wonder of God like Paul to expound on the deep reservoir of blessings he provides us. As Spurgeon, as Spurgeon put it, but while Paul was thus thankful for his office, his success in it greatly humbled him. The fuller a vessel becomes, the deeper it sinks in the water. A plentitude of grace is a cure for pride. As Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 5 states, do nothing from a selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Grace was also given to Paul in his mission to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul is committed to make all aware of God's plan and how it is unfolding. Paul felt a strong responsibility to make the mystery understood. He wanted everyone to know the secret hidden in God that the Gentiles are accepted by God as equals with Jewish believers. Paul seeks to enlighten everyone so that they may come to know and embrace the truth contained in the mystery. But of course, since enlightenment requires that people accept and believe the truth, in the end, not everyone attains enlightenment. In stating everyone, 
Paul seems to affirm the universal availability of this enlightenment, but certainly not a universal acceptance of it or universal salvation. Paul again repeats this idea that the mystery was hidden. He intensifies the idea, though, by noting that it was hidden for ages in God. Paul uses a perfect participle here, literally having been kept hidden, to emphasize the sense of the former hiddenness of the mystery. Let's also discuss that Paul mentions here that God created all things. It seems like an odd place to bring that back up, but when we think of the context of this statement, we can see that Paul is affirming that from the creation, God intended the unity of people in him. As one commentator stated, even the disastrous fall into sin and the fractures within the human race cannot ultimately thwart God's purpose for people. God knew all along what he would do. He had planned to create a new people in Christ. Such as Paul states in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 10, we see this lofty and cosmic role of the church. It is the channel by which God's wisdom is demonstrated to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. As before, heavenly places points not so much to a place as to a spiritual realm, the reality beyond what we see. This description of the church's role has no comparable mention elsewhere in Paul's letters. Taken in context, this statement means the church makes known God's wisdom to evil powers in order to bring about their conversion to announce their defeat or to cause them to marvel. This is to display God's glory even to those who oppose him. Paul is focusing on the majesty of God, demonstrated in the unity of Jews and Gentiles. This isn't about Paul preaching to them, but that they observe, observe what God is doing. The church's existence and conduct make known how great God's salvation plan is, both to people and to the powers. This provides to the church, to us, an unparalleled importance and responsibility. As commentator Bach states so beautifully, the church is seen as a painting of grace with God at work on the canvas. It is significant that it is the church as a whole, not just its leaders. That is a part of the display. Paul is urging the whole church to be what it ought to be, so that what God has done can be transparently evident. When true reconciliation takes place, it paints a powerful portrait. To see God bring formally separated people together is something to marvel at. The church makes known its call by living it out. Christian sisters, are you living out the church's call? Can others see that you are believers solely by the way you act, your attitude, the way you treat those who don't share the same opinions and beliefs as you, your everyday conduct on Monday through Saturday, not just on Sunday? John 17, verse 20 to 21 states, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. Just as your Father are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This was in according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, is stated next. This entire plan 
has an eternal purpose in Jesus, previously described in chapter 1, verse 10, that in the fullness of times, God will gather together or sum up all things in Jesus. The mystery of the unified body of Christ is according to that purpose. God works out this purpose through what Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. The not yet part of faith is still there, but God's purpose has already been accomplished in Christ. What remains is unfolding of what has already been established. The unifying of Jews and Gentiles is a preview of what Jesus will ultimately do in the fulfillment of summing up all things in himself. Also note here the title Paul uses, Christ Jesus is our Lord, which is also describing Jesus as Lord of the plan, as he is in charge from start to finish as head of the church. The biblical importance of the church is seen here as the eternal purpose of God. It was also called his plan in verse 9, the creating of a new and reconciled humanity in union with Jesus Christ. As commentator Stott states, secular history concentrates on kings, queens, presidents, politicians, and generals, the VIPs. The Bible concentrates rather on a group it calls the saints, often little people, insignificant people, unimportant people, who are, however, at the same time, God's people, and for that reason are both unknown to the world and yet well known to God. If the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and in the gospel, it must also be central to our lives. How could we not take seriously what God has placed at the center? We must place emphasis on being responsible church members, active in our church. We cannot fall into an inward-looking seclusion on the church, which culture has turned to a social norm of, I have my own personal relationship with Jesus. I don't need to belong to a church. Or as a church body reducing into mechanical, meaningless worship services, services, fellowship that is cold or surface level, or a complete indifference into the outside community and its pain and needs. We need to keep before us the vision of God's society as his family his dwelling place, and his instrument in the world. Then we shall constantly be seeking to make our church's worship more authentic, its fellowship more caring, and its outreach more compassionate. Then, like Paul, we will be ready to pray, to work, and if necessary, to suffer in order to turn the vision into a reality. Finally, the last part states, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. We have seen before in Ephesians that when we are in Christ, we receive blessings, such as chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is a new rich blessing Paul is explaining to his readers in this section. This is a connection to verse 11 as Paul is explaining the consequences of this divine purpose. This isn't a future promise as the verb here is present tense and specifies believers' present, ongoing possession of these benefits. What all gain in their faith is confident access to God, a reconnection to the reason why they were created in God's image. In Christ, we are joined to the living God. Three key terms describe this connection. The first term used means boldness. This same term was used in Acts chapter 4 verses 13, 29, and 31 to describe how Peter and John before the Jewish leaders declared without hesitation who Jesus is. The term used here is describing that believers approach God openly and address him like they would a family member. 
They have the right to be there solely because of what Jesus Christ has done. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 and 10 and 19 make a similar point. 10.19 states, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And chapter 4, verse 16 states, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can enter God's presence and approach the throne of grace because of what Jesus' death has accomplished. There is absence of shame because of what Christ has given. The second term refers to access an open door. Paul had made this point in chapter 2, verse 18, when he stated, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Romans chapter 5, verse 2 also refers to the access we have by faith. It states, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God is approachable for us because of what has been done in Christ. The third term speaks of confidence. It reinforces the other two descriptions in that it describes the context for boldness and access. We speak and we enter confidently because of what has been done in Christ. The picture here is of an open door for a family member or a best friend you know you can call or drop by to talk to at any time of day. A citizen with full rights to know and approach God. This confidence we have as participants in the new covenant is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, which states, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. The double use of terms related to confidence makes the point with emphasis. The facilitator for these benefits, of course, is faith in him. One commentator stated, The word for boldness has the idea of freedom of speech. We have the freedom to express ourselves before God without fear or shame. It is the blessed privilege of prayer. In short, Paul is saying that in Christ, believers possess the ability to enter God's presence in a bold and confident way. Not even hostile powers can deny believers access to God. One final sentence concludes this section, and it returns Paul to his starting point in verse 1. Paul begins here with a conjunction, therefore signifying he expects his readers to draw the right conclusion from what he detailed in verses 2 through 12. Paul is seeking to encourage his readers to not lose heart or be discouraged. Yes, he is a prisoner for their sake, mentioned in verse 1, but they should not become depressed over his circumstances in verse 13. Jesus' ministry prepared his disciples for the rejection that was coming. Paul does not whine or complain. He carries out his stewardship with faithfulness. Paul has been used in a greater way than he could ever imagine. In the same way, each of us has a place in the service of God's eternal plan. Knowing this and working towards this is a great guard against losing heart and being discouraged in the midst of tribulation and suffering. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the leaders rejoice at being considered worthy of suffering, dishonor for the name of Christ. Paul's suffering is for their glory. Their presence brings God honor, and Paul's role in making it happen is to their benefit. The gospel gives Jews and Gentiles alike confident access to God. The thought that Paul's sufferings were the glory of his readers may seem strange at first, but Paul viewed his imprisonment as part of his service to Christ, a service that exalted the Gentiles. If he was in prison for reaching out to the Gentiles, someone was fighting for them, and their future position was being given attention. 
That he was in prison should not be discouraging. The discouraging thing would be that no one was willing to go to prison for the ministry of the Gentiles. In Colossians 1.24, Paul's attitude can be seen as it states, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Here Paul is stating he took on the same path of faithfulness that Jesus undertook, meeting rejection as the Savior had done, and continuing on the path Jesus' death had opened up. Christ suffered to bring people to glory. Suffering is an implicit precondition for experiencing glory. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 to 18 states, And if the children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provide it we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All of the world lives out of a system of values usually so unconsciously that they cannot even evaluate whether the values they are living deserve to be valued. Values are, value is assigned to politics or political parties, traditions, religious entities, a particular cause, economic culture, society, and the list goes on and on. Too often, even Christians merely adopt the value system of the surrounding culture, but forget ultimate value. But Christian sisters, for us, the one true great value ought to be God's revelation in Christ. We need a conviction that God truly has revealed himself in Christ. To value this treasure, we must refocus ourselves on the gospel. The gospel is not one item among many. It is all Paul had and all we have. The gospel of grace, of death, of resurrection, of inclusion with God's people should be given central place in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. We need to be gospel people. We must give attention to the gospel, be defined by the gospel, and solve our problems by applying the gospel. We must separate ourselves from the world, from the culture, including the Christian subculture. We must study the gospel, know the depth and extent of the gospel, if we don't, we won't understand the gospel or the significance of such words as unsearchable in verse 8 and manifold in verse 10 of this section. The gospel is not merely about getting into heaven. It is about life now as well as in eternity. It is as much about discipleship as about our initial conversion, as much about a church unity as about individual faith, and as much about new life as about forgiveness. Mm 